0: Oh, our great God in heaven, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds once again to hear the clarion call of the word of God to sinners desperately in need of grace, the call of God to help us know how great is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all that he has done for us. And we ask that you would do that For the sake of your name, and for the glory of Christ, and for the good of all whom you have called, in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then, someone emerges in the sports world who is so talented and so gifted and so dominant that it is said that he or she carries the team. That apart from that one dominant player, there would be no way the team is even in the conversation for contending for a championship. In baseball, perhaps it was Babe Ruth in his heyday for the New York Yankees. Basketball, it's a little easier to see it in basketball when you only have five players on the court at a time. One player can be a dominating force, and Michael Jordan arguably carried the Chicago Bulls. He did it three times in a row. Then he stepped away from the game for a period and the Bulls weren't at all the same team. Then he returned and did it three more times. Jordan carried the Bulls. And in football, maybe Tom Brady qualifies in the contemporary scene who in his prime with the New England Patriots led them to the Super Bowl nine times, winning six of them And during those years, the entire team changed around him on multiple occasions. But he was the common denominator, and arguably, he carried his team. And that's essentially the meaning of the word we use as champion. Champion. The Philistines thought they had one. His name was Goliath. He's referred to him in the scriptures as a champion. He was huge. He was the Shaquille O'Neal of warfare. No one was more powerful. So when the Philistines had the chance uh, to uh, challenge the Israelites, they said, look, we'll put up our best guy, our champion, and he will carry us, and we will bury you. Oh, that was Khrushchev. I'm sorry. But, uh. but they essentially said that. And, of course, Israel had its own champion, an unlikely champion, to be sure. He was David, a mere shepherd boy, but who had developed some extraordinary skills as a warrior as he fended off wild animals and protecting the sheep. As time went on, he carried Israel. They would sing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And so the New Testament is clear about our champion. Our champion is not David, our champion is Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a Greek word that is used several times in the New Testament, it's Archagos, which translated in various ways as founder, as leader, as hero, but also as champion. And so in Acts chapter three, verse 15, Jesus is referred to as the Archagos of life. In Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, he is the archegos of our salvation. In Hebrews 2, 12, 2, he's the archegos and perfecter of our faith. So Jesus is the champion of our life, our salvation, and of our faith. Jesus is the one who carries us. And that's especially clear in our text that we're looking at this morning. The series is the Suffering Servant Series in Isaiah 53. It's a series that we are using Frequently on communion Sundays. A series from Isaiah, which is in the Jewish scriptures, which details the many ways in which the Messiah is a suffering Messiah. The notion of a suffering Messiah was not something the first century Jews were willing to accept. They, they were accepting a Goliath-like champion who would free the Jews from the oppression of the Romans. Even Jesus' own disciples had a hard time coming to grips with it. Even when Jesus explicitly told them the Son of Man would be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill him in Mark chapter 9... And today, many Jews seem to be blind to the plain teaching of their own scriptures as Isaiah lays out the suffering of Messiah in such thorough and vivid descriptions. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, the Messiah is said literally to carry those whom he would save. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And here it is, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has carried us. But what has not been so clear is in what way he has carried us. How has he carried us and for what purpose? The athletic heroes that I mentioned carried their teams, but in every case, while they were dominant, they couldn't have done it alone. They had teams who facilitated their gifts. Babe Ruth didn't pitch. At least he didn't when he was with the Yankees most of the time. He actually was a very good pitcher, but he didn't mainly when he was in his heyday. Jordan needed teammates like Dennis Rodman to get rebounds and and Scottie Pippen to open up areas of the court so Jordan could work his magic, and Tom Brady played not one down on defense. But Jesus, our champion, is different. He carried us. He carried us in ways in which we are incapable of contributing. He carried us when we were helpless and less than helpless. Indeed, he carried us when we were enemies of God lawbreakers, cosmic rebels against the Almighty Sovereign. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason we need to be carried is because of our sin. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you don't think you have any iniquity, you're off the hook. You don't need Jesus. You can check out now. You don't need a servant on your behalf, certainly not a suffering servant. You don't need to be carried. It is only those who have a sense of their own iniquity who have any reason to be attracted to this Jesus Christ, to Messiah Yeshua, to the man of sorrows. James Durham put it like this years ago many men will never look rightly on Christ's sufferings, nor suitably esteem of him, nor make him and the doctrine that holds him and his sufferings forth cordially welcome, except they have some sense of their sinful nature and disposition. Do you have a sense of your sinful nature and disposition? I like what R.C. Sproul used to say. He, He said it this way Let's say God gave every human being the right to commit one sin without incurring any guilt. Now, God doesn't do that, by the way. God is altogether holy and righteous. God's standard is perfect holiness. But Sproul, he said, for the sake of argument, let's say God gave everyone one sin. How long ago did you use yours up? Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Yep, that characterizes me. I love the Lord my God. I love him with my heart and with my soul and I love him with my strength. And that would be fine if you could just leave the word all out of it. Because as soon as the text says that I must love the Lord my God with all of my heart and with all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my will, all of my emotions, and that I must love the Lord my God with all of my strength, I don't know that I've done that for 15 minutes straight. For us to understand this meal that is before us, To understand what Jesus did on the cross for us who believe in him, to rightly consider the bread, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Christ, we must understand what it means that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First, we need to understand our nature as sinners. We are sinners by nature. It is who we are. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are like sheep. It is the nature of sheep to go astray. Left to their own devices, separated from a shepherd, and divided from their flock, all sheep will get in trouble. All sheep will eventually fall. All sheep will certainly die. In recent years, uh, Geico has come up with a series of commercials based upon the nature of things. And its common phrase is, It's what you do. You've seen those commercials, haven't you? Recall the spy who's trapped on a rooftop being chased by his enemies, and a helicopter is coming to uh, basically abscond with him, and his cell phone is ringing, and he answers the call, and it's his mother. It's mother's call at the worst times, and so the commercial says, it's what you do if you're a mother. There are camels in a zoo. They put up with all kinds of verbal abuse and sarcasm. Why? Because it's what you do. They're camels. They look that way and people talk about them. There's one with free-range chickens which are jumping on trains and sitting in restaurants and going all over the place. And it's their free-range chickens. They roam free. That's what you do. People in a horror movie make bad decisions. It's what you do who you are, in other words, and you're supposed to apply that, of course, to buying insurance. You know, 15 minutes can save you 15% on car insurance. Make the call. It's what you do. I'm not suggesting that, by the way. (laughs) But the point is, sinners sin. It's what you do. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It's who you are. Now, theologically, that's called original sin. Now, you need to understand that original sin is not the original sin, the original sin meaning Adam and Eve's disobedience, but theologically, original sin is the result of Adam and Eve's sin. Every single human being from that time on has a sinful nature, our fundamental dispositions are sinful. We are all inclined to act for our own selfish purposes. And that's the testimony of the scriptures. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Job, chapter 15, verse 14. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Rhetorical questions to be sure, but the answer is, no, man can't be pure. It's impossible. David in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From his very birth, he recognized his sinful nature. And so Jesus himself says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Why? Because it's who we are. It is what we do. Sin is also pervasive. There is no part of our lives that is not affected by sin. No faculty that is immune to sin. Our minds are affected by sin. We don't think straight because we are sinners. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. And then a few verses later, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Our minds are affected by sin. Our wills are affected by sin. Oh, we like to pretend that we have free will, that we can choose just as easily for good as for evil, just as easily we can choose righteousness as wickedness. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. Genesis 8:21. the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Our affections are affected by sin, we love that which is contrary to the nature and character of God. Jesus, or excuse me, John says in John chapter three, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Every aspect of our human nature is stained, tainted, corrupted by sin. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter three. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul uses the scriptures from the Old Testament and gives a veritable anatomy lesson of sin, from head to toe. Sin is pervasive in the human personality. Now, he is using metaphors to be sure, but he's not really talking about lips and mouths and feet and tongues and eyes. He's using those faculties to represent every conceivable human capacity. Sin is pervasive in the human personality. It's also universal. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is not one human being who escapes the indictment of sin. Isaiah 53 has in mind specifically those who will come to faith in Messiah. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Messiah Jesus has carried us carried us who believe in him by carrying our iniquity. But the indictment of sin applies to the entire human race. Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in that chapter he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So sin not only affects every faculty of every person, sin affects every human being. There is no one who can claim to be without sin, save our champion, Jesus, our Savior. And then sin is peculiar to each one of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We all have our own way of sinning as distinguished from God's way. Deuteronomy 10, 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? But instead, we have disregarded the ways of God and set out on our own paths. As Psalm 81:11 says, But my people did not listen to my voice, Israel would not submit to me. We have turned everyone to his own way. We all have our own peculiar way of sinning, don't we? My sins are not your sins. Your sins are not your neighbor's sins. There are as many different ways of sinning as there are human beings. Our guide in Israel, I hope you'll come back tonight, should be a very interesting evening. Our guide in Israel, fair who is a Jewish man, would frequently say to us, when you get two Jews together, you get three opinions. <laughs> well, I'll see him one and raise another. When you get two human beings together, you get five ways of sinning. We have our own ways of sinning. We all all are peculiar in our sinning. And even Christians, we prefer some ways of sinning over others. We look down on other people's sins and think little of our own. We might look with disgust on certain sexual sins, but shrug our shoulders over economic sins. We might find ourselves angry with liars, but we might easily pass by others in need when we could actually help them. We find some sins more acceptable than others. But the point is, we are all sinners and all sin apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and all of our sin condemns us all to hell, an eternity in hell. Why an eternity in hell? Because our sin is against an eternally holy and altogether righteous being. We deserve it. The lesson is, there are a multitude of ways of sinning, a multitude of ways of hell, But we are very creative, but there is only one way to heaven. So sin is not only pervasive and universal, it's peculiar to each one of us. And it's also serious. Sin matters. How do we know it matters? Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It matters so much that the God the Father sent his own son, sent his son to become incarnate, to take upon himself our human nature, and then sent his son to die in our place, and not just a physical death. He sent his son to die by taking upon himself the just punishment of our sins, to die by experiencing genuine separation from his loving father, to die by taking upon himself the hell we deserve. God didn't just shrug his shoulders when the human race rebelled. God didn't say it's no big deal. No, what God did was even unthinkable. For our sake, he made him who knew, who to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is serious. Sin is serious as a heart attack, as they say. In fact, it's more serious than a heart attack. So, dear friends, unless we understand the nature of our sin, the pervasiveness of sin in every human being, in all aspects of the human personality, unless we understand the universality of sin, that we are all sinners. Unless we understand the peculiarity of sin, that each of us sins in our own ways. Unless we understand the seriousness of sin, we come to this table unprepared to truly worship the Christ who has carried us, on whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. One more thing must be said to fully appreciate the supper. We need to consider not just the sinful dispositions and inclinations of ourselves and all of the dimensions of our iniquity, but we also need to explore dispositions and inclinations of God. All of this that Jesus has done in carrying us flows from the loving nature and character of God. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord did it. Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, laid on him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. And this was not a unilateral decision of one member of the triune Godhead. This was a decision in eternity past within the divine council, to save a lost humanity by sending the Son of God. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he that is the servant shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was the decision in the divine counsel of the Godhead to provide Jesus to carry us. Peter puts it this way in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did God do it? Why did he do it? Was he obligated to do it? Uh, Would there have been anything wrong, dear friends, if God had simply said, these are a sinful and rebellious people, I will cast them aside and consign them to an eternity of destruction that they justly deserve, and I'll start all over again. Would there have been anything wrong if God had said that? If God, dear friends, was obligated to save anyone, there wouldn't be any grace at all. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We take, yes, amen, we take the love of God for granted, do we not? But the only way we can even begin to fathom the love of God for us human beings is by considering the nature of our sinful condition, the pervasiveness of our sin in every human faculty, the universality of sin in every human being, the peculiarity of our sin, and how each of us creatively manufactures our own idols. And thus we understand the seriousness of our sin and then against the backdrop of our sin, then we can see the glorious love of God in Jesus Christ. Finally, in this text, we see the power of the servant's act. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, every single believer is in view. Jesus took upon himself all the iniquity of all of those who would ever believe in him and Jesus did not fail to save every single believer. He took your iniquity and your iniquity and he took your iniquity and he took my iniquity and he took, him, took it all upon himself so that every debt to God is paid Paid not by you or by me, but paid by our suffering servant. So what is our response? Well, dear friends, have you trusted Jesus, the suffering servant? Do you not yet see that only in this Jesus can your iniquity be carried? When will you turn in faith and trust the suffering servant for your eternal salvation? Why do you believe that it is not enough for God to send his son to die in your place, that somehow he should have done more than that? Do you really think he should have done more than that for a cosmic rebel like you? Will you not do it today? Will you not trust in the suffering servant today? Will you not cast the burden of your sin on Messiah Jesus right now? Why would you wait another minute to let him carry you, carry you into an eternity of presence with God? But Christian, can you now fathom what this meal is about? Do you get it? How in the body and blood of Jesus the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us straying sheep, all of us who have turned to his own way. And so, dear Christian, will you not give up your peculiar ways of sinning? For God's purpose in the divine counsel is to create a holy people. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so, dear believer, approach this table with awe and reverence. And indeed, with holiness. Worshiping your champion, your hero, my hero, my champion, the one who has carried you. That's what this meal is about. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, Spirit of God, the one who comes to sanctify us, move among us in these moments and bring us to the place of this supper where we humbly acknowledge our sin before you and worship our Savior who has carried us. In Jesus' name, amen.